Good morning. Today's scripture comes from the book of Acts, chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be here with you. Jeff and Leslie, uh, we're so glad that y'all are here, and I look forward to saying hello after the service, and I know others will as well. Um, before we get going, I have a couple of things I want to say. Um, first and foremost, I uh, want to issue a word of thanks uh, on behalf of uh, eight of us that were here this week uh, participating in the uh, ACBC conference out here at the church. You as a church made this possible for us, and we were able to live stream this conference. Um, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. That's what ACBC stands for. Um, if the Lord wills, we would like to start a counseling ministry here at the church, open to the church and the community. Um, in order to do that, we need certified biblical counselors. And, uh, and so this uh, conference was a way for us to uh, join in with uh, other certified biblical counselors um, who have, uh, or many places along the path, uh, some of them have been certified and they are counseling. Others are uh, where we are in the process and working through the steps of certification. So uh, let me say on behalf of those eight who, who um, participated in that, let me just say thank you uh, to you, our church, for making that possible. If you are interested in hearing more about um, ACBC and, and what uh, certified biblical counseling looks like, um, see me either after the service, call me this week, email me, whatever. I'd love to talk with you about that. In January, we'll um, roll out another opportunity for you to start the process. And it, it's a rather um, long and intense uh, process, but that's good news, right? That uh, people that are coming to the certified biblical counselors are coming to someone who uh, is, is uh, competent in, in leading and counseling in the scriptures. And so, um, again, just let me say thank you uh, for making that possible. Also, let me brag on you all uh, just a little bit. Uh, Pastor Jeff and I, along with our wives, uh, were at the Membership Matters meeting this past Sunday after the 11 o'clock service. And a a repeating theme that morning or that afternoon um, was just how grateful those uh, in the class, those four families are, for the warmth uh, that they have felt and, and the hospitality that you have given them as they have visited this church and are now looking at, at becoming members of the church. So that begins uh, with Joe Kaysen and his team at the doors, so grateful for Joe and, and putting all that together with First Impressions. And then for those of you who are part of that First Impressions team, thank you so much for your uh, service week in and week out. We're grateful. You being the, the first line of defense, uh, it's just so encouraging to people. We heard it over and over again, how encouraged they are by your kindness. So thank you 
um, for that. And also, it doesn't just stop at the door, right? It, it carries over, it spills over into the worship center. So when we have guests visiting us and they come into this room, right, the same thing happens. Uh, we know that you have been. We, we ask that you continue to, to just reach out to those new people that you're seeing. If you see a new face, go up, introduce yourself, say hello. It makes a difference. And so now we're so thankful for how kind you are to those who are um, our guests, to those who are visiting, and just want to encourage you to keep doing that. Let's go uh, before the Lord now and uh, give uh, thanks for this day and ask for his help in this time of worship. Father, we are grateful for the worship that we've already experienced this morning. We thank you for uh, the worship of um, singing, that we were able to join our voices together as the people of God to, to sing praises to you, the Son, and the Spirit. Father, I pray now that as we turn to uh, this time of worship where we sit under the preached word, Father, that you would help us all to engage with your word. Help us uh, to see what you would have us see this morning. Open our eyes and our ears. Give us minds to understand and hearts to do your will, we pray. Father, I do want to also give thanks for those who are watching online grateful for them taking the time this morning to worship with us uh, remotely. We do pray for those who can't be here, whether um, through injury or some kind of illness. Father, we pray for healing for them, that you would bring them back uh, quickly. We pray for Deputy Bruce, who was involved in an auto accident, and ask, Father, that you would um, help him to heal up quickly. And We give you thanks that there were no serious injuries. And we're so thankful for our friends that help us uh, on a weekly basis here. Um, Father, I do pray that you would make us ever aware this morning of what Christ has done for us. Let that truth resonate in our hearts. Let it fill our minds. And may we go from this place this week just living lives that reveal that we have been changed, we've been impacted by the good news of Christ Jesus. So I do give you thanks for all these things, and I pray, Father, that you would help us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen. Well, if you were to go on a journey with me, and we were at the, the, the base of our driveway down here, and we turned left out onto Steve Tate, and if you traveled a mile and a half up Steve Tate, many of you are familiar with the north gate of Big Canoe, just across Steve Tate, however, is Hubbard Road. Um, if you were to turn onto Hubbard Road, you would think you're on any other road in Pickens or Dawson County, right? It's paved, it's in good shape, beautiful, the scenery around there. That is until you drive four-tenths of a mile and the pavement ends. Hubbard Road is very near and dear to uh, my family and me. We live off of Hubbard Road, right? And so for seven years, we've traveled the unpaved Hubbard Road. Wherever we've gone and, and on return trips, uh, we have utilized that stretch of county road. And having to depend on an unpaid road, unpaved road can present you with many challenges. There's the dust that comes in the spring and the summer, and it, it blankets your car as well as the beautiful uh, once green leaves that line the side of, of the road. They, they turn from green to cream. 
there's the, the, the rains that come, and along with the rains, you have the washboarding and the gullies, and you have to slow down to almost a snail's pace. There are the frequent calls to Dawson County Public Works Department requesting the washboarding and gullies be repaired. There's the wear and tear of subjecting our vehicles to the washboarding and gullies until the Public Works Department comes out and repairs said road. And then, then after they have repaired the road, there's the joy of driving on fresh gravel that sometimes, I kid you not, is as large as your balled-up fist and gives you many punctured tires. Living on an unpaved road is not for the faint of heart. And it certainly has given me a greater appreciation for paved roads. Since we moved to Dawson County, we've had three public works directors, and I've gotten to know all three. I've spoken many times to the first two, and I'm just now getting to know the third. Welcome her to her new post. All three of these directors have told me that they cannot pave Hubbard Road for various reasons. So we, and now the Dines, who are new residents to Hubbard Road, are left to only dream of smoother travel. The underlying reason I've been given for why Hubbard Road cannot be paved is this. It's simply not in the budget. See, they need uh, $2 million, according to their research and investigation. They need $2 million to buy right-of-way. Then they would need to pay to come in and engineer or re-engineer the road, taking some of the hairpin turns out so that it could be safe for paving. My desire to have a smooth road, and in there, the county's intention is to be good public servants who meet the needs of the citizens of Dawson County are not enough to pave Hubbard Road. Most of us are familiar with the phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So if we take this modern proverb literally, it teaches that whether intentionally or not, travel on the well-worn path to destruction is made easy because of its surfacing. The road to hell is paved, indicating that time and attention have been given, again, whether intentionally or not, to making travel there less noticeable. Look, I never forget when I'm on Hubbard Road. I never have to ask, where am I? It's hard to daydream when your sole goal is trying to keep your teeth from getting knocked out on the steering wheel. So, traveling on roads like this, on roads that are like the road that leads to hell, can be very deceptive. On paved roads, it's easy to set cruise control and daydream or even fall asleep at the wheel. So the, the road to hell is paved is problematic, but that is paved with good intentions is even more troubling. Well-meaning people have done and said things that gave them or others the comfort and assurance that they were headed in the right direction, only to learn, and often too late, that they have charted a course to permanent spiritual death and judgment apart from Christ Jesus. So in the passage we're looking at this morning, we see such an example of well-meaning people who are intentionally teaching, yes, but seemingly unintentionally misleading in their teaching on how to be saved from our sin. So here, the, the result is always the same. If not corrected, it is disastrous. 
I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We've crossed over the middle of the book of Acts and are continuing on in our journey of God's mission to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. Luke gives us three snapshots of the gospel in today's text. As we look at verses 1 to 3, I want us to see the disputed gospel. That's our first snapshot. It's going to be our first point, the disputed gospel. In verses 4 to 12, I want us to see the definitive gospel. That will be our second point. Lastly, as we consider verses 13 to 21, I want us to see the directing gospel. So the disputed gospel, the definitive gospel, and the directing gospel. So let's look again at verses 1 to 3 to see the disputed gospel. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all of the believers very glad. Have you ever noticed how it's not always easy to spot the bad guy in movies? We've seen movies where they'll march a lineup of suspects into a room behind the the glass, and the person who's the witness to the crime, they'll be tasked with identifying the guilty party. So in the movies, at least, most of the suspects look very similar. They're usually close to the same height, usually have roughly the same build, and it's often the case where the person who is looking at the suspects has a hard time deciding which one committed the crime. I don't think I've ever seen a movie where four suspects that look very similar to each other were marched in and sticking out from them is the guilty guy wearing an all-black suit with a a black top hat and an ominous smile. It's often difficult for appearance alone to distinguish good from bad. It's no different when it comes to distinguishing bad actors from good with respect to theology. Please hear me, from all appearances, the certain people of Acts 15.1, they had great intentions. They longed, it seems, to see people saved. These certain people were even following Jesus' instructions that he had given to the apostles back in Acts 1.8 to move from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria out to the ends of the earth. These certain people were mission-minded, and like Paul and Barnabas, they had set their sights on the Gentiles. Like Paul and Barnabas, these certain people were going to great lengths to make disciples. They had skin in the game, and they were investing in their idea, their idea of kingdom work. My guess is, if you would have marched three of these certain people into a lineup with Paul and Barnabas, you wouldn't have been able to tell them apart by their appearance or their actions. So how could you distinguish between them? It was their message. It was their gospel that set them apart. 
That's what, according to verse 2, brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Though well-intentioned, the certain people that had come down from Judea were teaching the believers, and by this account, they had no business doing that. Why? Well, look at their message again in verse 1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So what was at stake here was the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ being defamed. We'll be reminded of the message of the gospel in verses 4 to 12, but for now, I want us to focus on the message of the false teachers. Notice a couple of things as they pertain to the message of the false teachers. First, this was not evangelism. This was discipleship. Luke tells us the certain people from Judea, the false teachers, were teaching the believers. They weren't evangelizing loss. Again, they were discipling the saved. This is a warning to us all who've been saved, that our being saved doesn't mean that we can set our cruise control and glide down the sanctification superhighway. Now, we have to be diligent and discerning. The, the New Testament is filled with admonitions to be on guard with respect to what we believe and how we apply it to our lives. So we can't just hope for the best when it comes to our discipleship. One example of how we should live is found in Acts 17. So we're going to be there in a few weeks. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but the Bereans, they model well how we should not only come to Christ, but also how we should live as discerning Christians for Christ. Listen to how the Bereans are described in Acts 17, verse 11. They received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. May we, friends, be more like the Bereans the second thing to notice about the message of the false teachers to the Christians in Antioch was that this was no gospel at all. It was bad news, not good. One more time, the message the false teachers were spreading was this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. I don't want to minimize the unique moment the church was in at this time in redemptive history. We don't have time this morning to examine it in any detail, but you can imagine just how perplexing this situation was. When you had a, a group of people like the Jews who were accepting of the message of the gospel, and at the same time they were trying to figure out how to synthesize this message of grace by faith alone in Jesus with their cultural norms. I just can't imagine how difficult this was. Not only was this a challenge for Jewish Christians, Acts 15 tells us it was a challenge for Gentile Christians. One commentator says very succinctly, the, the issue was whether Gentiles needed to become Jews and follow Jewish ceremonial laws in order to be Christians. He goes on, according to the Old Testament, one had to be circumcised to belong to the people of God, and it seemed to many of the Jewish Christians that the church should also require this of male believers. But by God's grace, Paul and Barnabas were there in Antioch in this cultural moment, and they took issue with the false teachers. 
Remember what Luke says in verse two. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. We can understand why Paul so sharply responded to the false teachers and we can get a sense of what he might have said to them from reading Galatians chapter one, verses six to nine. I think we have this for you. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Paul and Barnabas were at an impasse with the false teachers. And hanging in the balance were the precious Gentile souls of the church in Antioch. So what would they do? What we see happening next is a model for a community of faith in crisis. They don't just sweep this under the rug and say, it's really no big deal. Let's just get back to making disciples. No, they take it seriously. They would look to the Holy Spirit-driven wisdom of the apostles and elders at the church in Jerusalem. Notice one more thing from these verses covering the disputed gospel. What was the result of Paul and Barnabas having to make the journey to Jerusalem? They could have kept their heads down, determined to get to Jerusalem as quickly as possible, but they turned the trip into a tour of gospel encouragement. As they made their way to Jerusalem, Luke tells us, they told how the Gentiles had been converted, and this news made all the believers very glad. Friends, we should take every opportunity we are given to spread gospel encouragement. Let us be faithful to speak often of what the Lord is doing in our midst. Give him glory for what he's doing so that this news of the Lord's work can make other believers very glad. This too is a reminder that even in trials and tribulations, we can witness to the work of the Lord and bring joy to those around us. Listen, I know the trials that many of you are going through right now. I realize many of you are experiencing incredible tribulation and pain. Who better than you at this moment in your life to speak of the good things that God is doing in your lives? Encourage those around you with what God is doing. Share how he has worked in your life so that they can be encouraged, so that believers can be made glad. So we've seen the disputed gospel. But again, in verses 4 to 12, we're going to see the definitive gospel. Look at verse 4 with me. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. 
It's sort of a, a carryover from verse 3. Do you see how both on their way to Jerusalem and once in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas, as well as those traveling with them, give glory to God? We just talked about how they did that and how you can do that as well. Always quick to speak of how God was at work through them and pointing to God for everything he had done and was doing. This kind of attitude, it seems to be the fuel of the early church. We contrast that with what happens next. While we don't have every detail of what happened, Luke quickly transitions between the good report from Paul and friends to this wet blanket that has been thrown on the situation by the believing Pharisees. They, they said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Can't you just hear them? Have you ever been in, in an experience similar to this? You're sharing something amazing that God has done recently in your life, and, and someone walks in and is determined to suck every bit of the joy out of the room and just throw that wet blanket on your good report? That's the picture that we have here from Luke. So seeing as the warm reception has been cooled by the Pharisees and they're ready to get down to business, the apostles and elders, they turn their attention to the question at hand. Look at verse 7. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. So you'll remember Peter seeing Cornelius, who was a Gentile, coming to faith in Christ back in Acts chapter 10. You also remember Peter reporting what had happened to the church in Jerusalem and and receiving similar harassment from the same people who are now harassing Paul and Barnabas. This event between Peter and Cornelius had taken place around 10 years before the Jerusalem council that we have here in Acts 15. So Peter is taking this opportunity to remind the Pharisees that nothing has changed in that 10 years, and really in, in the span of all redemptive history, nothing has changed between, between the time that Cornelius and his family were saved in Acts 10 and this moment in Acts 15. So just as with the Gentile Cornelius and his family, the Lord is saving by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Peter lays out in verse 9 exactly what happened to Cornelius and his family. And it's exactly what happens to anyone who is saved. Look at verse 9. He, meaning God, did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter's testifying that God did not treat the Gentiles any differently than he had treated the Jews with respect to his free offer of salvation to them. So if you are saved, the reason you are saved is because God has purified your heart by faith. Look at verse 10 where Peter is still speaking. Now then, talking to the, the Pharisees who were trying to put this burden on the Gentiles. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. 
just as they are. Peter's argument here in verses 10 and 11 should be underlined and highlighted in our Bibles. I remember seeing Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ years ago when, when it was in theaters. Now, I saw it before I went to seminary. I saw it before I was discipled by my pastor. I saw it as a young man who didn't know his Bible well at all. And I distinctly remember leaving the theater wondering if the message of the cross, the gospel of Jesus, was for Gentiles at all. Had I been familiar with Acts 15, verses 10 and 11, I would not have had to wonder that. Granted, there are dozens of other passages, both in the Old Testament and the New, that clearly affirm salvation is available to both Jew and Gentile. But surely, surely here in Acts 15, verses 10 and 11, Peter is providing a glorious truth for all who will repent of their sin and trust in Christ Jesus alone for their salvation. Peter's choice of wording in in verse 11 underscores how confident he is that God does not discriminate between Jew and Gentile. Peter could have easily said, the Gentiles are saved just as we are, or the Gentiles will be saved just as we will. But he doesn't do that. He uses the Gentiles as the example of those who are saved, and it is the Jews who have been or will be saved according to the same manner as the Gentiles. This is the definitive gospel. God purifying hearts by faith through the grace of the Lord Jesus. The disputed gospel in verses 1 to 3 and again in verse 5 said it is through Jesus and, in this case, circumcision and law-keeping that you must be saved. The disputed gospel takes the focus off of the substitutionary work of Christ, and it places the focus on you and me. So the question, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus and fill in the blank. That can never be the right answer to that question. The definitive gospel, by definition, takes the focus off of you and me and turns the spotlight to Christ because he is the star of the show. He is the main actor. He is the A-lister who is inviting us to his party. These Gentiles were hearing the definitive gospel, and it was revealing to them their sin. These Gentiles were hearing how Jesus had made atonement for their sin, and just as God had planned, were turning to Jesus in faith. Look at verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Paul and Barnabas telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Luke, in verses 3 and 12, is using proofs of the work of God among the Gentiles as his transition statements in his account of what happened leading up to and inside the Jerusalem council. The work of God is evocative. It produces emotional responses for those who behold it. It was joy and gladness in verse 3, and it was stunned silence in verse 12. Uh, Joni, uh, my wife, for those of you who have not met her, uh, our kids, are, they're homeschooled, but they, it's complicated. They, they go to a, a school setting a couple of days a week, and she serves there on Wednesdays, and she has a, a unique role that she's been given. She 
has a very intimate awareness of a lot of different things that are happening in the lives of the students and of the teachers. So Wednesday, a week ago, she and I are alone, we're riding in the car, and she tells me a particularly troubling story of a young lady, a student in the school. The account was bleak, and frankly, I wondered what good could come from it. It seemed like one of those hopeless cases that I'm sure you are all well aware of in your lives. But this past Wednesday, one week later, Joni and I were on a date at a restaurant, and she shared with me how the Lord had worked through the director of the school to get involved in the messiness of the situation. The director had worked with the parents, gotten their permission to meet with this young lady, and, and he had invited Joni to sit in on the meeting. And Joni had a front row seat to the grace of our Lord at work. A situation that just over a week before that looked hopeless was masterfully remedied through the grace of our Savior. As Joni told me, <laughs> she told me what happened <clears throat> this past Wednesday. I sat in stunned silence. I had this swirling of emotions like, like I do now. Is on the one hand, I was speechless. I wanted to burst out into tears. And on the other hand, I wanted to stand up in the restaurant and yell at the top of my lungs, yes, God is good. The work of God is evocative. And we see it most clearly in his definitive gospel. So we've seen the disputed gospel. We've seen the definitive gospel. And lastly, we'll see the directing gospel. Look at verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, Peter has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. So were, were Peter, James, and the other apostles just shooting from the hip and, and winging this decision? Or was there something else that they were leaning on? We've already seen the, the repeating theme that 
The work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Gentiles was proof positive of God's forgiveness and acceptance. They were also bringing another proof to the table of evidence. James is quoting from Amos chapter 9 and Isaiah 45. So we're not going to do it now, but if you were to flip back and, and look at those passages, they may look a little different. And the reason is because James is quoting from the Greek translation of these passages. So how do we know if faith claims are true? We hold them up to the perfect standard that is the Word of God. James rightly tested this claim by subjecting it to Scripture, and he concluded that the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. Thus said, thus saith the Lord, that, that statement that we often hear, thus saith the Lord, should be our standard as well. We should hold the lamp and light that is the word of God to our path to illumine for us the way that we should walk. If the Jerusalem council relied upon the word of God to direct them, we as disciples should do likewise. So with the word of the living God giving him his bearings, James, as a leader of the church there in Jerusalem, addresses the council. Look at verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This, at first glance, seems like incredibly good news for the Gentiles, but what are we to make of verses 20 and 21? This is good news in that James is indicating the council based on the word, work of the Holy Spirit and the confirmation of the word of God has decided that the Gentiles should not have to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. In other words, salvation does not hinge on you first becoming a Jew. But no sooner is James affirmed salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that he seems to issue requirements for the Gentiles. So again, I ask, what's happening in verses 20 and 21? Listen, it's crystal clear that verse 19 is dealing with the issue of justification, how one is made right with God. Verses 20 and 21 are dealing with sanctification, how one grows in obedience and holiness before God. So we should not think that James is saying, well, you don't have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved, but you do have to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood in order to be saved. No. We've already seen the, the careful and intentional efforts of the leaders in Jerusalem to outline the definitive gospel and show that it is not our efforts plus our faith that saves us. James and the other Jerusalem leaders are providing guardrails for the Gentile believers to aid them in their sanctification. But why these four things? These seem like such a mishmash of, of things to lay at the feet of the Gentile Christians. It seems like a, a rather bizarre and scattered list of things to avoid. Many scholars and commentators have suggested this list is to help the Gentiles assimilate with their new Jewish brothers and sisters and to provide the formula for 
living lives that do not provide an offense to these brothers and sisters in Christ. Certainly, as a follower of Christ, a primary concern that must occupy our minds is how can I best love my neighbor, right? This is given to us by the Lord Jesus. We must love our neighbor. We don't want to offend our brothers and sisters in Christ, and plenty of scriptural admonition is given to this very issue. However, there's another view, and I think it more adequately explains what's going on here, and furthermore, I think it has application for all people over all time. Do you remember the description that I gave of Antioch in Syria when we were first introduced to these people back in Acts 11. One of the early Roman writers said Antioch was so corrupt that its immoral sewage polluted Rome. That's pretty corrupt. Antioch was a spiritual hub with much idolatry and pagan temple worship. So think Vegas, and I think I mentioned this last time I preached on this, but think Vegas and then ramp that baby up by 10,000%. Who are the people that James had in mind when suggesting avoidance of these four things? Again, food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, meat of strangled animals, and blood. It was the Gentile Christians from Antioch who would have been coming out of a life of pagan worship and idolatry. James was addressing his audience, a first century group of people whose greatest threat to their sanctification was the idolatry that they were leaving behind as a way of life. Again, it might be hard for us to grasp, but you get the sense that only by grace from God would they be able to fight the temptations of their former lives. They're in Antioch, the city that is just permeated by idol worship, by idolatry, and by all of the craziness that went on at the temple. These guardrails that James and others were giving them were to help them in their pursuit of holiness before the Lord. So it's true that abstaining from these things would help the Gentiles to honor their Jewish neighbors, but first and foremost, abstaining from these things would help these Gentiles to observe the first commandment, which says we shall have no other gods before the one true and living God. So if James were to write a modern-day list for us, what things would he include on our list? We are at just as great a risk as the Gentile Christians from Antioch. We may not be tempted to go worship false gods at a temple, but We do have our idols. So what hinders our sanctification? What stands between us and God? What are our idols? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And we see a road in Acts 15 that is being paved. Imagine with me that we're all standing on the side of an unpaved road, just Hubbard Road for, for the sake of the illustration, right? We're, we're all gathered there on the side, and we're at the center point of the road, and there are two paving crews standing back to back. And each of those paving crews is going to start at their point and work toward the opposite end. So we've got the false teachers as one of the crews, and they have the best of intentions, and Yet, they are paving their end of the road right toward hell. 
The other crew is made up of the apostles, elders, and other faithful disciples who are paving the road with the definitive gospel. It is the very blood of Jesus that they are laying down for the surface leading toward heaven. Like the false teachers, we can tend to either overshoot or undershoot the requirements for salvation with our good intentions. Like the false teachers, we can overshoot by laying burdens on people that only Christ can handle and that only Christ has handled. Or if we undershoot, we can just assume that everybody's going to heaven, right? All good people, after all, go to heaven. So we can't overshoot by laying burdens on people that only Christ can handle, and we can't undershoot by assuming that everything's just going to work out in the end. No, we have to be clear on what the definitive gospel is. We have to be clear that it is by the blood of Christ that we are saved. He has made atonement for all who will trust in him and repent of their sin. So we must be clear with people. Friends, as we cherish the gospel, let us give thanks that there is no dispute. The work of Christ is definitive, and the freedom given by the gospel directs us in our sanctification to worship God and reject idols. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your work, which is so evocative. I thank you that you have done things and are doing things in our midst that can bring us to tears or make us shout with joy. Father, I do pray that as we cherish this definitive gospel, that tells us of the finished work of Christ, may we shout that from the rooftops. May we take it to those around us who are in desperate need of it. And as we disciple, may we be faithful to remind each other that there are no requirements that we must meet other than repentance and belief. We thank you for the finished work of Christ. We thank you for what he has done on our behalf. And may we accept that free grace that you have offered us. Free to us, costly to Christ. May we accept that and may we reject our idols. Help us to protect those around us who are being misled by People with good intentions, but with a false gospel. Give us discernment, give us wisdom, and help us to live lives that are honoring to our Lord and Savior. It's in his name we pray, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen.